Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hacks' dedicated Second World War air power podcast, Hedgehopping, with me, Matt Bone. Today we are looking at the Luftwaffe. Now the Luftwaffe looms large in our collective memory. In a myriad of war movies, they are the baddies. In hundreds of books, they are just the opponent and tend to be referenced in terms of machinery. And our gaze within them tends to turn very quickly to our own side. But today we're going to have a look at the difficulties of researching the Luftwaffe and why our view tends to be as it is. I'm delighted to say we are joined by historian and author Chris Goss. Chris is the author of over 35 books, most of which are focused on the Luftwaffe, its men and its machines, including two of my favourites, Luftwaffe Fighter Bombers Over Britain, about the Tip and Run campaign of 42 and 43, and Brothers in Arms, which is all about 609 Squadron and JG53. Chris, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Thanks for inviting me, Matt. Yeah, fine. Hope you are and everybody else who's listening in is okay. Super. Well, we usually open these things with the lockdown question. How has it been for you? Yeah. How has it been? Uh, long, uh, long uh, groundhog day-like um, longing for going down the pub, going out to a restaurant. Um, not so much meeting my daughters. It'd be nice to see my daughters for once in a while and uh, getting away from the wife because the wife has been working uh, from a, a second study within our house in the land she's been working from home for one year and the end of three weeks now one year three weeks without a break we kind of hope the end is in sight but you don't want to get your hopes up too much, that's true you? that's true so I, I i guess let's get let's get cracking on this so how does a retired RAF wing commander start researching the luftwaffe uh, it goes back to when i was a kid um i was lucky enough to live on the hampshire west sussex border and uh, uh, being a per- person of a certain age, I used to meet people of a certain age who used to be there during the war. And it was always interesting chatting to them, going around to their house and saying, you know, did you live around here during the war? And do you remember things? And I could always remember, um, you know, the one that really sort of stuck in my mind was um, a Heinkorn 11 bomber, which uh, crashed on the cricket pitch of a place called Stansted House, which is uh, not too far from Rowan's Castle just north of Emsworth. It collided with a tree whilst doing funny old thing, hedge hopping in, in, on the 8th of October, 1940. It crashed there and exploded. Um, and uh, even when I was going around there in the late 70s, early 80s, you could actually pick up chunks of Heinkel still in the ground where the aircraft exploded. And the more you ask the question, 
You know, I was told one chap had uh, the oxygen bottle from his aircraft, which he was allowed to keep because he could use it as a hot water bottle. And the chap three doors down from him had the tail wheel from the aircraft, which uh, was uh, on a wheelbarrow. And that sort of thing, sort of a, a person of, you know, 16, 17, just fire your imagination. And that's probably the start of it. Growing up a long way away, the, 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 those are the stories that you sort of miss. Because so so many of our guests talk about that sort of period of, we, we think of it being a long time ago, but the remnants of it were still literally all, all around us until quite recently. Well, I was contacting Luftwaffe fighter pilots. Uh, in the late 70s and they were the age now that I am now so it, it does put it into perspective I was born you know just about uh, 15 years uh, after the end of uh, or 16 years after the end of World War II so yeah it, uh, time passes quickly. So what, what complexities are there to Luftwaffe studies when compared to allied ones and I know from my own research on on typhoons it's quite straightforward because most things are digitized and they're in english how does that sort of switch when you when you start looking at luftwaffe records well the biggest problem with luftwaffe records is of course of course they're, they're all in german um and the germans were meticulous record keepers you know for instance they would keep a, what we would call the, the operations records books uh for uh for our, our fighter and bomber squadrons they had an equivalent book like that and Sadly, very, very few of them survived the war or they were captured and therefore then pulped. But the detail that was in there was incredible. You know, names, rank numbers, takeoff times, landing times, uh, weather, what they saw, what they didn't saw. It's, um, it's quite incredible. And that's one of the joys of, of the Luftwaffe. The, the other thing also is that the Germans um, all seem to have a camera. Uh, and because the war was going their way in 1940, 41, they took lots of photographs. Uh, my father-in-law was in the Air Force uh, and uh, he never took a single photograph during the war. Uh, and he regrets that, he regretted that until the day he died. It's one of the, don't want to say buy your books and look at the pictures, but the pictures are, are, are wonderful. And it's, it's those, those candid moments of, of the pilots and the crews sitting around, which you could almost swap out the, the insignia on, on the uniforms and they could be the allied photos that we're so used to. When you come across those, what is the feelings? I suppose that's a really open question. I didn't prep you for this one either, so I'm sorry. It's just those yeah. those treasure troves of, of photos that we don't often come across. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a joy when you actually get a photograph and you flip it over on the back and the chap has actually written the date, the time, the unit, what was going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on the, um, the Dornier 217, which was the, uh, the follow-on bomber for the, uh, the Dornier 17 flying pencil. And I was lucky to contact uh, living in Canada, sorry, in Canada, yeah, um, the, the family of a German bomber pilot. And the family still had all his medals, all his documentation, apart from his logbook, unfortunately, but all his photographs. And, and their father had actually put dates and names to every single photograph, which is, for me, it, 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 it's an absolute joy because it makes it, it, makes it so easy. And, you know, the, the excitement of when you can look at a photograph and look at a date and look at an incident and match the two up together is, is quite exciting and uh, very, very satisfying. That sort of brings us on to my, my next question about the sort of research and putting it together is, do you approach it any differently or do you just come at it as the same subject as, as a group of men? Because you, you've got the, I've bookmarked it actually, you've got this fantastic line at the, at the end of um, Brothers in Arms, which says... One was defending its country, the other was defending aircraft flown by fellow countrymen, as well as being a true fighter unit and fighting against the aircraft of an enemy nation in a combat of life and death. 
I was taking a moment for that because it reminds us that these guys were doing essentially the same job, mm. essentially the same reasons. But yeah. does that mean you write it in the same way or do you tr take it a slightly different approach? You've got to be very careful because, uh, you know, when I, that was my first book when I was writing that. I actually had a Battle of Britain pilot who was going to write the forward, a very, very, very well-known Battle of Britain pilot, um, who then became a Typhoon pilot. Um, and uh, when, when I told him what the title was, he, he refused to do the, he said, he said uh, we were never brothers. Uh, we were never brothers in arms. I said, but you were, you were landing at exactly the same time. You were celebrating your victories. Okay, one, if it was RAF, they were celebrating with beer and pims. Um, the Germans, they were celebrating with champagne and, uh, and, and wine. Uh, I said the only difference was the language that they were speaking, the markings on the aircraft. And, of course, one was supporting the aims of, uh, of an evil dictator. I guess that's a very fine line to to tread you know you can remember that the likes of you and i weren't there during the war you know i can remember going to uh, uh, when i was, again when i was a school boy we found a hurricane which had crashed in the back garden of somebody's house and this chap was a, a mechanic on um on one squadron on hurricanes during the battle of britain and he didn't realize there was a hurricane in his back garden and yes there was a merlin engine and everything else in there and i actually contacted the german pilot that was responsible for bringing it down. The, 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 the hurricane actually collided with the Heinkel and the German pilot was coming across. And I said, do you mind if we bring him across? And he said, no, nope, no. Nope. He said, I'm not. You know, I'm, I, I saw what those bees did uh, and I don't want to be friends or meet anybody who's German. And you have to respect that. You know, you have to respect their views and you have to respect their wishes because, you know, we were not there. We, di we didn't experience what they were doing day in, day out. Yeah, we, we have the luxury of, of time so to temper mm. our views. Yeah. So let's let's get into the, the Luftwaffe in the Second World War. The first question really is, is, what was the strategic philosophy of the Luftwaffe compared to, say, how the RAF was set up at the beginning of the conflict? Well, you've got to remember is that the Germans, when they got into World War II, had a tried and tested air force, courtesy of the Spanish proving ground. So you've got to remember the Messerschmitt 109 single-seat fighter arrived in Spain as a prototype. And the aircraft that they had at the end of it was the aircraft that we experienced in the Battle of Britain, the Messerschmitt 109E. They had experienced professional aircrew with a very rigid and tried and tested training regime. Whilst we in Britain had only just graduated from biplanes uh, onto the Spitfires and the Hurricanes. We had outdated ways of, of, of fighting our, you know, fighting our battle, having battle formations. You know, you have the one that was tried and tested by the Luftwaffe by the German ace Werner Mulders, the Finger Four, which, um, which was uh, when you look at the way it operated, you know, two pairs of two each escorting each other and then uh, operating as a fighting unit of four. You know, that was the battle formation which was adopted by the RAF and was adopted by the American Air Force because we found out that the Vic formation and having Weaver above you know, the two guys who were right at the top of the formation, keeping a look at, who were always the first the Germans used to shoot down. You mentioned the training philosophy there. What was the training a new Luftwaffe pilot would go through? It's something that changed drastically by the end of the war, but it was it was very well documented and very almost gate based, wasn't it? You had to get past certain licenses before you could progress to 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 a certain. Element. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You go off to various courses. You know, you would a bit like you know when I joined the Air Force, you do your officer training, and you drill and all the bits and pieces that go with it. And then when you successfully complete complete that, you go on to your uh, your flying training, and then you have various things to jump through: blind flying, you know, flying this way, flying that way. 
Uh, and then, of course, then you go on to your um, what we would call an, uh, an operational training unit. Well, the Germans had these uh, Jagdfliegerschule f- f- fighter pilot schools, you know, before the war. Um, and so these guys were, had been, were being trained to a high degree as fighter pilots, likewise the bomber pilots, uh, even before um, the outbreak of war in September 1939. We very much had to pay a rapid in the RAF, a rapid catch up. Uh, yes, our training was good, but of course it had to accelerate quite quickly. So we were dragging people in uh, from a very small between wars air force uh, to actually bolster people. You know, you're seeing also in the Battle of Britain where they're having to take experienced fairy battled pilots and train them up as Spitfire pilots because we were suffering a shortage. And again, that's something the Germans were going through at the end of the war. They'd been flying bombers or flying fighters over the Bay of Biscay with a crew of three. And then they're put into uh, a single-seat aircraft up against Mustangs, light, uh, Lightnings, Thunderbolts, Spitfires, you name it. Um, it was uh, you know, very much that sort of situation. It's that strange, I don't want to say luxury again, but the ability that the Allies then had to send their pilots off somewhere safe to train versus the, the Luftwaffe pilots who were probably, you know, getting still a high quality training, but we're flying in an environment where there was very aggressive people looking for anything in the air to shoot down, which immediately means Mm. if you do make it through a, you've probably used up a good chunk of your luck and B you're going up against people that have got possibly hundreds more hours flying in it than you do. Yeah. Well, I, uh, we have a family home uh, near Bergerac in Southern France. Now Bergerac was a fighter, training airfield, um, which by the end of 1943, 1944, was comfortably within the range of mosquitoes, lightnings. The American uh, fighter pilot, uh, Chuck Yeager, he actually was shot down uh, on a mission not too far from Bordeaux, not too far from where we live down there. So it shows how far their single seat fighters were getting. You know, during the Battle of Britain, the Luftwaffe, um, the range was, you could just about make it to the outer skirts of the southern outskirts of London. And then, of course, you had seven minutes flying time before you came back. You know, they couldn't imagine flying an aircraft all the way down to the south of France and then flying around, shooting up training aircraft and coming back again. So that brings us on to equipment quite nicely. It's almost like we've planned this. How did the sort of politics and the of the Lefocca's procurement come in? Because you've written the book on the HE177, which is a long and torrid tale of infighting to, to get that aircraft. Well, it never really, really arrived, did it? But, you know, how, how did how did that stop them from getting the, the equipment even that they needed? Throughout um, the design and development of many of the German aircraft, which came in to, towards the end of the war, it was political interference or military interference or a lack of the right engines which caused the problem. You talk about the Heinkel 177, which was a very, very advanced aircraft, which had two engines essentially powering one propeller. Uh, and the idea of that aircraft, it was going to be a long-range aircraft. The Luftwaffe wanted it as a dive bomber. Well, you don't want to dive a four-engined aircraft, do you? It had a, a revolutionary cooling system, uh, which was found to be inadequate because of the engines they used. As a result, the engine started to overheat. So they then had to put radiators in, which increased the drag on the aircraft, which meant you had to use more powerful engines, and the more powerful engines were found to be substandard, and as a result, they used to catch fire. Um, the, the, the aircraft was called the, the Reich's petrol, uh, you know, light, lighter, because it was always catching fire. And this is an aircraft that first flew 
uh, in uh, November 1939. It didn't go operational until November 1943. And even then, it was being chopped out of the sky because it was arriving too late. I, I find the, you know, we're going to get kind of geeky here, but the, the lack of the, the raw materials that go into just making an engine, making a bulb, something as simple as a ball bearing that would have those mm. knock-on effects to make these quite advanced engines highly highly unreliable you know the um was, mm. you, know, you, you i think you mentioned in your your tip and run book about you know the fw 190s that were re reaching reaching the squadrons in in 42 and 43 were you know they had terrible reliability troubles despite the the frights mm. that they were putting into the raf at the same time it, it could be as something as basic as glue um the the, uh, the heinkel 162 the revolutionary essentially plywood, single seat, single engine fighter, which came out to the end of the war, the RAF bombed the factory, which made the glue to stick the aircraft together. Uh, they therefore had to have a second factory, which produced substandard glue. And during the test flights, the aircraft was finding that bits were breaking off it. Um, so, you know, don't just think engines, you can think, or ball bearings, it's even down to the, the quality of the glue that was being used. And I was reading Callum Douglas's book about the, the secret horsepower race and he's got that fascinating section on the additives in the fuel that then started eating the fuel tank linings in the in the Messerschmitt of the fw190s and that simple change that wasn't worked out all the way through just to make more of something had mm -hmm. such catastrophic is it mm -hmm. necessity is the mother of invention but you have to every now and again you have to stop and pause and think about are we going the right way you know, are we going down the wrong alleyway when we need, you need to sort of make sure everything's okay? Now, see, that's the, that's the unusual thing about some of the air, some of the aircraft the Germans introduced you know, came through without a hitch. You know, the, the Dornier 217, um, you know, that first flew, uh, well, it was, it was being operated by the middle of 1943, but because it was meant to be the aircraft to replace the Dornier, the Dornier 17, it was rushed in even though the aircraft was sufficient, it was the training for the crew and then coming up against a new enemy, which were British night fighters uh, equipped with airborne radar. They had to adapt. So you couldn't fly straight to a target and straight back. It was a series of, you know, you go there low level, climb to altitude, and then you're all over the place and hope your gyros haven't tumbled, uh, hope that you haven't been picked up by an airborne or a ground controlled night fighter, find your target, drop the bombs and get back home again. The, the stress levels on a normal op in a straight line would have been massively high, but to throw in all of that as well must have been mm. terrifying. Yeah, a friend, a friend of mine, he was a Junkers 188 pilot, and he was shot down the first night that they they bombed, used the Junkers 188, which is the replacement for the 88, in an attack on London. And he was hit by anti-aircraft fire, which meant he didn't have the full maneuverability of his aircraft. And he was picked up by a night fighter and his crew were shouting, it's getting closer, it's getting closer, it's getting... You, there was absolutely nothing he could do. And he said the, the aircraft opened fire uh, and he was the only person. He had an armoured an armored seat in the aircraft and he cringed and he could hit the, hear the bullets hitting the aircraft, killed his three crew, set fire to his aircraft. He got out without a scratch, but there was absolutely nothing. And you, you, can you imagine that? flying down the Thames and you can see something is creeping up behind you, getting closer and closer, knowing it's going to open fire on you and it's going to bring death, death and destruction to your aircraft and crew. It's a fascinating parallel to the stories that were, again, that we're more, probably more used to hearing about the, you know, the Lancaster and Halifax crews that would have that similar experience over Germany that 
the shared experience that these crews had is is very strong, isn't it? Well, I, I um, again, some years ago, friend of friend of the family, he was a uh, flight engineer on Halifaxes, and he was shot down in October 1943, uh, a week after this German Junkers 188 pilot was. And he kept the German pilot came over, uh, took him to a pub, got him to meet uh, Jerry, and the two of them did not stop talking about what it was like and tactics and techniques for three hours. They did not stop talking for three hours solid. It was quite something uh, to, be, to behold and quite something to listen to. Wonderful. We, we sort of jumped straight to straight to where things started to go wrong. But for you, what was the high point of the Luftwaffe's war? When did that, when did that happen? There are some people think that, that the high point of the war was that was the Poland campaign, because from then on, uh, they started suffering losses. You, you look at the Battle of France. Yes, they had su- they had superior firepower. They they did extremely well, but goodness gracious me, the number of bombers they lost, and that's against against a you know an alleged second rate French air force, which was doing okay, and uh, and a, a very very small RAF. The Battle of Britain can't wasn't wasn't a success. The early parts of the Battle of the Atlantic, when of course they had the Focke-Wulf Condor four engined aircraft. And they were able to go from bases in France right the way out into the Atlantic and attack ships, which were undefended. And of course, they would be able to attack them at low level. And you know, that's why so many of that crew got the Knight's Cross. Um, it's, it's difficult to actually say that, you know, where was the, you know, the roaring success? Um, because, you know, each success seems to be sort of tempered by failure. I was just reading your article in the new, the new Airplane Monthly about the the Condor raids on, you have to set aside, my, my missus is old stomping grounds in Scotland to the, the hydroelectric plants up there. That's remarkable and something that had never crossed my mind that there were those sorts of raids being operated from Brittany as far north as Scotland. That That's mind-blowing. And that we, we haven't heard about it, despite the fact that there's a bomb in the museum, well, a bomb in the factory on display. Yeah. It's uh, it, it it is an unusual story, um, and it was you know only because um, a Junkers eighty eight reconnaissance aircraft, and they'd only just re- recently got those aircraft converting from an older type, and they were based in Stavanger Solar in Norway. Uh, they'd flown across, bombed a hydroelectric plant, um, you know, which must have come as a hell of a shock to the people to the west west, uh, west of Scotland. But then on the way out, spot a, um, a convoy anchored up off Oban uh, and they radio in. And that evening, the convoy is attacked by attacked unmolested by um, five Focke-Wulf Condors, which attacked at low level because there was nothing there to shoot back at them. That is a remarkable aircraft, the Condor. Not only is it very pretty and you know, not, not that we rate aircraft on aesthetics only, but it achieved so much for an aircraft that didn't particularly have a, a you know, the, the, the bomb load that one would expect, you know, even in your article, you're talking about only a literally a handful of handful of not huge bombs being dropped on that convoy. But the effect that they had across, across the North Atlantic as well was massive compared to the number that they actually had. Cause again, it was a reasonably small unit, wasn't it? A very small unit. There was only one unit. You know, most German units are made up of, three wings of three squadrons each. Well, um, from the Condor's perspective, they only had one, initially only had one wing of, of them. And of course, the aircraft wasn't designed as a bomber. It was designed as an airliner. So uh, it had its own little problems that came with it, but it, 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 it fitted, 
fitted what they wanted to do, which was basically being based in Bordeaux or being based in Brest. They could go out with, with gay abandon knowing exactly what they could do. And of course, you know, the, the famous thing is the simping of the Empress of Britain, which was uh, a, a massive troop ship. And it was attacked uh, by a condor, which was damaged slightly by anti-aircraft fire by one of the defending aircraft. But they managed to put a bomb virtually down the smokestack. Uh, it, it, it's, it's quite quite amazing. And the pilot, as a result of that, gets the night's cross. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. As we're sort of looking, we, we've sort of touched on this before. We sort of look at the effectiveness as of the Luftwaffe as the war goes on as a sort of steady decline. Was it anything specific or was it this complete sort of loss of trained men, good materials, reliability? Was it all of these things compounding due to the effects of the Allied offensive against them? Or was there something that played against their ability to, to continue the fight in any in any way? Well, you've got to realise was it uh, one of the one of the things you're taught is selection and maintenance of aim, and of course you can't do that when you're fighting a fighting a war in Russia, fighting a war across the Atlantic, fighting a war uh, in Northwest Europe, fighting a war in the Mediterranean and North Africa. Um, of course, then with the Americans coming into the war, um, bringing their massive industrial capability, notwithstanding you know notwithstanding the bombers, but you know their fighters were superlative. The Mustang. The, uh, the the lightning the thunderbolt which was twice as heavy as a spitfire um and, and you know they could they could range far and wide across there and of course uh, all, add all that together and you know a war changing the, you know, the the russians being able to sorry the soviets being able to push back because they you know basically they have the manpower and they have the people to do that um it was a combination of everything that uh, that you know spelt spelt the end really yeah, I have a note here saying great kit, small numbers. You know, do do we maybe spend a bit too much time fetishizing the equipment over you know the the, real, the realities of what they were what they were up against? Some some of the equipment was superb, you know, but it was always a case of too little, too late. You know, the Messerschmitt two six two, you know, jet fighter, um, you know, very very difficult to shoot down. Uh, but then of course the Germans wanted to use it as a bomber. 
when they have, you know, they have plenty of other things. The Heinkel 219 Night Fighter, uh, you know, the, it, it was fitted with an eject, ejection seat, for goodness sake. Um, you know, lovely aircraft, but it was coming in far too late to make a difference. Um, and then you have some of these, you know, you know, as we said before, the Heinkel 162. And you've seen some of the things, uh, the, the very well-known uh, British uh, test pilot, Eric Winkle Brown, tested a number of these aircraft at the end of the war. And, you know, his comment about the Heinkel 219 for us was, you know, could have been, you know, it, it was a good job for us, but, you know, it was superior to the Mosquito, uh, in, in, in his his, uh, his opinion. Um, you know, the the, um, the Heinkel 162 um, could have held its, held its own comfortably against a Tempest, uh, which was, you know, uh, again, another superlative. But again, it was when the war ended, the uh, the, uh, the airfield at Leck in Germany was lined up with Heinkel 162s, which never never fired a shot in anger. Thank goodness for, for the RAF. Throughout all your research, and we sort of were chatting about this earlier, what resonates for you? Is it, it I take it it's not so much the equipment, is it? Um, I, I'm, I'm not a person when I write my books, it's not, and they took off uh, flying an aircraft with a serial number and they went to this height. Uh, it's, it's the personal aspects of what it was like to be. It's the people because, you know, without the people uh, and the skill of those people, um, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have uh, an effective weapon in a Messerschmitt 262 or a Messerschmitt 109. And I was very lucky to meet the daughter of Germany's top night fighter pilot, Helmut Lent. Uh, amazingly, she lives in this country now. Um, and, you know, going to meet her and seeing what she had from her father and seeing her, who looks exactly like her father, uh, he was killed in an accident in October 1944 after having been received, he was the top scoring night fighter pilot at the time, having flown in Poland, uh, Battle of Britain, then converted to night fighters right the way through. He had the Knights Cross with oak leaves, swords and diamonds, you know, the, you know, the top award. Uh, it was quite humbling uh, to think that, you know, she was she was allowing me to see you know, personal records, photographs of her father's funeral, uh, the, you know, the record of service for her father, the, the what we would call the operational order, which was the instruction for all the people who were attending her father's funeral. Uh, who was who is going to stand where and who's going to work. and he looked at it and it was like going through a list of you know top the top scoring fighter pilots of the war uh, those who had survived to 1944 and um, that's for me it, it, it's it's the person it's, it's it's the man or the woman on the on the ground who uh, or in the air who had to, who had to do all this and again we come back to that treading a fine line because they were fighting for a terrible evil regime mm. I'm, I'm trying to form a sort of follow-up to that which i suppose is highlighting what they went through and what they for the most part didn't live through but not celebrating it is that what i'm looking for it, which must be mm. a, a very tricky thing to do when 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 you're putting a book together it is it's it, it's quite you know another example to give you you know in my book i'm doing on the door 217 i've got a copy of a logbook from a, one, a German pilot who had only recently joined his squadron and he was sent out in uh, I think February 1943 to drop four bombs in daylight on the centre of Reading which is just down the road from me. Uh, he did that with such great success it killed 42 people because one of the bombs landed on the most uh, the most popular cafe in Reading at the time. And uh, there is there is an award. Yeah, and the guy he was killed in 1943 uh, flying uh, against Britain. 
these people now, um, I've, I've come across it with people, you know, the son said, well, my father said he'd never, ever, ever flown uh, against against London. And he said, I've just found his diary. And he, 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 he flew against London again and again and again. I said, sorry, but he had, you know, by the time he got shot down, he had nearly 200, 200 bombing missions. It's you've got to be very, very careful because you know, you know the memories of the bombing of the bombings of um, of, of Reading uh, and the same day I think they attacked um, a railway station, another aircraft attacked a railway station just outside Guildford, not too far from where you live, Matt. And there's a plaque there to the people who were killed on that day. Um, it was total war, uh, to, use, to use the terms of von Clausewitz. Um, uh, and you've got to remember that you know the guys up in the air, air doing something were prosecuting uh, a war, and the poor people on the ground, uh, you know, two-year-olds, three-year-olds killed when a bomb goes through their house when they're sleeping at night. One I just found recently was the, when the Germans used uh, what they anti-personnel mines bombing Grimsby, uh, and these things they sort of like they, they were very very small, but they hang from telegraph wires, they hang from gutters or whatever else, and you go and hit them with a stick and they go off. And they said one of these came through the roof um, and there was uh, two, two women who were in the same bedroom. They saw this thing hanging there. They tried to, carry it, tried to cut it down and it exploded, killing both of them. That sort of thing you can't forgive and you can't forget. And then those butterfly bombs were copied and used by the Allies a year later. Very successfully, yeah. I'm sort of re- relatively new to, to sort of researching specific you know specific operations and things like that but the the thing that's always noticeable to me is trying to get the other side of a story so if, you know the one, one of the things I've, I've looked at is the um two six threes um bad day when they went up against brest and were bounced by fw190s of the the, the maritime unit and there's that classic um mm-hmm sort of series of gun gun camera images from uh, Derek Erasmus' typhoon of him shooting down, I think it's George Sievert. It was, yeah. The squadron commander of 268. Yeah, his CO had literally just been shot down by Sievert and then he he, he got Sievert. It's, a, it's an example I've used a few times because it's one of those occasions where you can actually tell the whole, the whole story and actually put names to a lot of people. And I think that's, that's important because it can get... I don't want to say bloodthirsty, but it can get a little bit grim when you're still celebrating something like, because it is an amazing, amazing series of images, but you are literally watching a man die. It's, I, I find it quite moving to when you have those opportunities to start telling these stories around. And I, I suppose it's something that you've, you've, you've found quite, quite, quite often is that ability to actually tell a story in a round as opposed to it was this mission, they came back with X number of victories and, and that was it. That's a well, quite funny. I, I recently got hold of a copy of that, of, the, of the, the camera gun stills for that, which are very, 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 you know, you can see the aircraft very clearly. You can see the bullets are hitting the cockpit. And of course, being a typhoon, those are 20 millimeter shells hitting it. And this guy had just done exactly the same to uh, Flight Sergeant Erasmus's squadron commander. And that is why the uh, in the village, the Focke-Wulf 190 crashed a little bit further on than the typhoon. Um, yeah, the, the, the one of the most interesting ones is um, is the shooting down of the actor Leslie Howard over the Bay of Biscay. You know, something that for those who don't know, Leslie Howard, well, star of Gone with the Wind, uh, the Spitfire story. Uh, you know, quite a well-known between wars, um, well, Hollywood superstar. And he his aircraft was shot down over the Bay of Biscay on the way back from uh, Lisbon, 
um, and the German, I interviewed the German squadron commander. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the right time that day. It was not a, it was not a British aircraft. It wasn't a German aircraft. They tried to, they tried to fort it down and the, the Dutch crew, which were flying it, um, you know, legged it. So they shot it down. Um, and on board was Leslie Howard, uh, a, a mother with two children, uh, quite a lot. Of, there, were, there were no military person on board. And it's, it really is, a, you know, when you see the photographs of the aircraft then burning on the water, you know that is, that is the, the final resting place of, of, a, of a Hollywood superstar. And all those silly conspiracy theories around it, it are not true. It was just a... It, it was an opportunity, wasn't it? They didn't go looking for him or anything silly like that. They were looking, they were meant to be uh, escorting U-boats in that day. They didn't find a U-boat, so they had time to spare. So they went out a little bit further. And unfortunately, they went out a little bit further to actually bump into this uh, this transport aircraft. Uh, and you know, having interviewed the guy, he said, he, the, the German squadron commander, he said, if we'd known who was on board, could you imagine the propaganda he said we would have escorted it back in. Shooting it down didn't do us any per, and it didn't serve us any. If we'd escorted him back to Bordeaux, and then sort of he would have been sort of paraded around um, uh, around Berlin as you know the man who portrayed our Reginald Mitchell in the Spitfire story. It's but but conspiracy will always be there. I've I, I've had um, some very nasty experiences where saying the Germans were lying. Well, I'm actually sitting here next to me here. Is the actual German report of exactly what happened, and you know why would the Germans lie about it when they got it in black and white? There, yeah. the The bad joke about that was they went after him because they didn't like First of the Few, hmm. <laughs> which, which is a, which is a wonderful film which tells a complete fantasy story of of this bit, but but it's also the only remaining footage of the S four, which is is hmm. a movie geek sort of reference for you if you're keeping keeping score. We, we sort of spoke earlier about this being sort of the, the first of hopefully a, a couple chats that we're going to have with you, Chris. If you have me back, of course. I'd, I'd love to because the, the Biscay campaign, I think I don't want to get into it too much here, but that's one that we don't tend to, don't tend to cover. And, you know, you've written about bloody Biscay. That is a fascinating, fascinating campaign, mainly because it's, it's covering so many different aspects. You have, you, know, you have the U-boats, you have anything, but above them you have this screen of not only condors, but just about every type you can think of with a long-range tank strapped to it trying to trying to help. Mm -hmm. What for you sort of drew you to that? Was the fact that well, no no one else had really spent any time on it, or was it something else that led you to it? Well, as a, as, as a child, we used to have uh, holidays down there, La Rochelle, Les Sables of course the U-boat pens are still down there. I think you, you can go down there now, I think there are they, they're so thick and so big, they can't destroy them. Uh, I think one of them actually displays art. And, uh, you know, I got interested in it. Uh, it was something that, uh, and nobody else had written, and people had written about, you know, U-boat war. They'd written about various little aspects of it, but they'd never done the German side of it because the Germans only had one squadron, proper squadron, which was a night fighter squadron being used at daytime. So a night fighter aircraft being used in the daytime because it was the only aircraft that would go out as far as it could. Uh, and it could hold its own against, or it shoot down quite with, with gay abandoned uh, Whitleys and Wellingtons and whatever, which again caused this escalation. You know, we then would send out um, bow fighters. They would send out more. Then there would be these big battles over the Bay of Biscay. Then, then they put Focke-Wulf 190s, as you just mentioned earlier on, 
which of course caused that you know they they, they intercepted um, a, uh, a formation of Lancasters on the way back from Turin, one of which was carrying uh, being flown by Wing Commander Nettleton the of the Victoria Cross. They shot that down over the Bay of Biscay, uh, and because the aircraft crashed in the sea, uh, and a lot of the Germans then didn't survive the war. It was a forgotten aspect. And, you know, the book has been reprinted three, four times, and there's still a lot of interest there. A, f- a friend of ours, Marion Walters, was sort of saying the other day, it's a, it never ceases to amaze her how many more stories are yet to be, to be found and to be told of a conflict that we would think mm. has been pre- pretty, pretty well covered 70, 80 years af- after the fact. But, you know, a, a very good friend of mine, Peter Cornwall, who uh, who is well known in aviation circles, he's retired now, but he wrote the Battle of Britain then and now, and he did the Battle of France then and now, and he was quite an expert on, on the Battle of Britain. He says, he said, you know, I wrote these books 30 years ago, he said, and it was based on the inf- best information available at the time. He said, people will continue to turn up things, you know, they've, they've turned up German records in uh, an archive in the Soviet, in, in Russia, which were captured by the Soviets. Uh, and he said, you know, he has to take the hat off to the new people who are coming along, who are coming out, out with the new information. But at the same time, there are other people who, who will continue to not regurgitate, will continue to, to uh, agree with or continue to follow the line of uh, what was said 30 or 40 years ago when there is new information available. And people will say, well, why didn't they, didn't they say that then? Because it wasn't there. Um, you know, I've just finished uh, finishing off today the uh, operations over the Mediterranean by the Dornier 217 unit, which carried these glider bombs. And there's been a number of books have been written on it, a number of very good books, but but it, it only scratches the surface. You know, one of the German aircraft is shot down and crash, crashes at Benidorm on the way back. Um, so, so you've got them trying to launch uh, guided weapons against Allied condors, uh, Allied convoys, and then, of course, they're crashing back in... We all go on where we would all like to go on holiday now. <laughs> it's an end, endlessly fascinating subject. And like I said, we, we, we will be definitely having you back to sort of diving into a specific campaign because we, I just wanted to take the opportunity today and I can't thank you enough to just spend some time thinking more broadly about it because it is very easy for me doing this show to stick to the, the easy stuff because I know people are going to listen if I talk about Spitfires. I know they're going to listen if I speak about, you know, I get someone on to talk about Mustangs. But it is tricky to talk about, you know, the Luftwaffe and hopefully going to be doing a show about sinking of foresaid um, by the Japanese, but from the, the Japanese Imperial Navy perspective. It's tricky to find sort of researchers and, and authors like yourselves because it's it seems a lot more straightforward to to stick to, stick to the easy stuff i don't want to call it easy because it's never easy never easy but uh, i i you know, i i will be i am no expert on on the eastern front i'm no expert on the mediterranean because if, if i did that it would be all consuming uh, and i will admit i've been lucky i've been lucky enough when i was younger to be invited to german fighter fi- fighter pilots reunions out in germany and uh, when they found out a i'm air force as i was then one chap came up to me and he said um would you like me? To, would you like to see my Knight's Cross? And I went, oh yes, please. And he took it out of his top pocket. He said, I can't show it off. He said because it's got a, it's got a band, a band budget. But it wasn't just the Knight's Cross. It was the Knight's Cross with oak leaves. And this guy had 120 kills. And he said to me, he said, one thing I've always wanted to know is who shot me down and took prisoner in North Africa. Did some research and came back and he, I said, I've got your answer. He said, I hope it's not American. I said, it was a Spitfire. 
being flown by American. And uh, he was very, very, very happy about that. And three months later, he passed away. That, I've I've been fortunate to meet meet a few veterans and it's 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 one of those experiences that you kind of aware even though you're having a glass of wine and a, and a great natter with you know with, with someone like you know Colin Bell for example who's hundred years young and still going strong that's something that we should cherish and those experiences we should mm. be we should be documenting as, as much as we have. Yeah, it's like going to the same reunion and seeing a chap sitting by himself and they and they said oh you know who he is and I said no. He is the guy who he is. He is an armorer. He is the guy who designed the jazz music uh, obliquely mounted cannon, which they used on night fighters. And if those if people would like to just look up Schreger music, and uh, it was something means that they could fly underneath Allied bombers unseen and fire up into the fuel tanks without being seen. And this guy, he was sitting there having his beer, very very quiet, a bit portly. He, Paul Marlam, was the guy who actually designed, came up with the idea of this. All connotations aside, is an elegant solution to the problem that they were facing. Mm. Um, which, you know, to, to be fair, war ten, tends to do. You do come up with some very imaginative solutions to, to, to tricky situations, of which something as simple as fre frequency hopping for radio-controlled torpedoes that that we that we use every day and which was just making noise in the background a minute ago as my bluetooth suddenly connected uh, to a speaker on the other side of the room well, that's what you need so you need a war or a crisis look at covid you know that covid is a crisis and look how quickly we have got this plethora now thank goodness um vaccinations and uh, second world war was no excuse to that first world war exactly exactly the same as we said before i said before you know, necessity is the mother of invention and the biggest kick up the, up the pants is a war or a, or, or a panic or a pandemic. I'd like to start wrapping things up because I've got a whole pile more questions, but I'm going to save for when we start talking about Biscay or the tip and run raids, mm -hmm. because <laughs> we, we could be here for a long time. And it's Friday afternoon after all. Mm -hmm. And there's bottled bottles of wine in the other room that are, that are calling to us. I, I, I should no doubt. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us. When is the, the 217 book due? The first one is coming out by Osprey, which is the, with their, their, their little series. And that's due out in September. Uh, I have to finish. This is a big one uh, along the lines of my book on the Dornier 17 and the Focke-Wulf 200 Condor for Cressy. That is going to be finished by August, September, but that won't be out until this time next year. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, Brothers in Arms is wonderful and my dear friend on the show, Chris Sams, author of early Bomber Command books. He basically has worn out copies of that book. He's he's read it so many times. So on behalf of him and us, thank you so much, Chris. We're going to have you back. We, we shall get that in the diary and we'll, we'll, we'll get the word out for that. And we will pick one of your one of your other books to have a look at. And I think Biscay is the one that we're going to mm. dive into. So thank you so much. Okay, pleasure. Stay safe. I'd like to thank Chris Goss once again for joining us on History Hacks Hedgehopping. We've put Brothers in Arms and Luftwaffe Fighter Bombers over Britain on our very own bookshop. If you head to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, you can find the books from our latest guests available for you to purchase on there. Every sale sees 10% come towards supporting History Hack. And we thank you for all the wonderful ways that you support the podcast, whether it's through buying books, through Patreon, or just by spreading the word. You are amazing. Thank you very much. And as we've mentioned, Patreon, time for the Patreon bit. 
In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.